Well, this is our second time in the Gospel of John, and um, I'm just really excited to get into this book and just to see where God is going to take us. Let me ask you a question, though, as we begin this morning. How many of you have met someone extremely important? Okay. Extremely important. Now, that's a very broad statement. Extremely important. I'm talking like, you know, a senator, governor, president, um, maybe a king, a queen, or a prince. Guys, I know your wives are your queens and all that kind of stuff. But really important. Um, I had to throw that in there. I saw a few eyes rolling there. Okay, very good. Um, maybe a famous athlete. Uh, maybe a movie star or a musician. Um, anyone have a person that you've met that's really, really famous? Just yell it out. Yes. Alan Keyes, okay. Tom Selleck, very good. President Carter, wow. Hmm. Anyone else? Yes. Andy Garcia at the same time? Okay, just want to make sure, all right. I've had some run-ins with some golfers. Lee Trevino, yeah? Severiano Ballesteros. My favorite, I I wasn't sure if you guys would know who he was, right? My favorite golfer. Um, I walked with them at Wentworth Golf Club in in Wentworth, England. That was a great time, and they even said some things to me. I think it was like, get out of the way or something like that. But um, I've met some pro basketball players. Um, Kent Benson, he even signed my basketball shoe. He used to play for the Detroit Pistons years ago. and then Rick Mahorn. You guys remember Rick Mahorn? In fact, the Rick Mahorn story is interesting because my, my wife called a radio station. They said, you know, first five callers, whatever, will win this prize. And boom, we called and we got four tickets to a Pistons game and we get there early and we get our picture taken with someone. Well, it wasn't the someone that we got our picture taken. He was kind of like a no-name player. Um, but while we were standing waiting for that, Rick Mahorn came. Now, Rick Mahorn is about as tall as the ceiling. I mean, he's huge. And he came by, and Gavin, you were probably about, what, seven or eight or something like that. But he comes and he just goes, he picks him up, holds him up, and shakes him. You know, Gavin's like, you know, boom, he puts him down. So that was his brush with, with fame right there. Um, and then um, uh, you guys may know who Mark Kelso is. He used to play football for Buffalo Bills. He actually was my sparring partner. Makes me sound really good, right? Um, just for a few times. Um, he was a real, real nice guy. Um, but that's pretty much it as far as important people I've rubbed shoulders with, which isn't much. Now, my dad, on the other hand, because he worked for British Airways, he was responsible for the Queen's visit to the Samoan island of Pago Pago. Didn't even know there was a place called Pago Pago, you're saying. I don't know, right? Yes, he was responsible for that, and he tells the story of, you know, being in charge of just making sure everything's fine. The plane came in, they took the stairs up there, and she came down the stairs and walked the 30 steps to where he and a couple other people were standing, and he put out his hand, and she shook his hand, and she went on her merry way, and that was it. That was his brush with fame. Now, she was a respected queen, well-known individual. Um, and uh, it was certainly a brief encounter. John 
in his gospel, wants to introduce us to someone who's really, really important. But someone who is not quite as respected. Someone um, who is little known. Now you have to understand, we are very familiar with Jesus Christ, but not necessarily everyone was in that day. And he wants his readers, Greeks, Jews, and now us, to be introduced to this person who we know is Jesus. He was no ordinary human king. He is the king, the Christ, the Messiah, the eternal king. And listen, when you brush up with him, you will never, ever be the same. And you will talk about him for the rest of your life. So John is writing this gospel not simply as a historical record. He's writing this gospel for a specific purpose. And we looked at that last week. Just turn back to John 20 and, and uh, verse 30 and 31. Just to remind yourself of, the, of what John says the reason is why he wrote this gospel. He says there in verse 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so he's saying, I gave you all this evidence so that you would believe. But it doesn't stop simply a belief. The result, the fruit of that belief, ultimately would be that we would have life. And so his record here is really evangelistic. He is wanting people to read his account of Jesus Christ and be converted. And then having been converted to be full of the life that comes from knowing Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And so he begins his book by what we call a prologue. Now a prologue is simply um, a summary of what is to come. It's an introduction of sorts that introduces the elements of the story that is going to be told. It's like if you're watching a movie, or maybe it's usually on TV, right before they actually show it, they show you just boom, 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 highlights of the story, just bits and pieces, and you're supposed to try and fill in the gaps. And, of course, they make it such so that you are really interested to find out what the gaps are that need to be filled, and they're not, never what you really thought they were going to be, right? That's the whole point. But it's the same idea of just giving you bits and pieces and kind of sending you in the right direction and making sure that, that he lays enough foundation so that you can really understand some of the context of what it is that he's saying. Now the ultimate purpose for John in this prologue is to make sure that we understand that Jesus, this person that we're being introduced to, is the Messiah, is the Son of God. In other words, he doesn't want to necessarily for us to wait until we're in the story, until we're reading the accounts to come to that conclusion. He's laying it out right at the start. I'm telling you about this person who's identified as the Word, who is Jesus Christ, who is the Word come in the flesh. He is the one that I'm telling these stories about. So he's laying it out at the beginning. He wants you to know. So he's not simply presenting Jesus as a man, but he's truly presenting him as the Messiah, as the Son of God. So these 18 verses... Um, really are packed with meaning. Lots of nuances, lots of purposes behind the things that are stated. Um, and we're not going to 
drag this prologue out, although there could be a lot of messages from this. We're just simply going to divide it into three sections. And um, basically how I've laid it out is this. We have here three introductions where John is basically saying this. Let me introduce you to, first of all, the Word. The Word. And that will be ultimately his introduction to Jesus and who Jesus is. Secondly, he's going to say, let me introduce you to the witness. And that witness is, we know, John the Baptist, right? Who comes telling about the Word. He prepares the way for the Word, and he's preaching a message in preparation of his coming. But he is the witness. And then ultimately, at the end, um, we're going to be introduced to what I'm calling the way. And that would be the actual process by which this Word comes and impacts the world. And that's where he takes on the form of man, comes, and, you know, and, and he is ultimately uh, rejected by the world. But that's the picture. We're dividing into those three different sections. And um, today, we're going to focus on these first five verses um, where it really talks about the Word. John is saying, I want to introduce you to the Word. So let's read these first five verses, and then we'll pause for a moment in prayer, okay? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Lord, help us today to be humble, to be teachable. Lord, to, to hear from we want, Lord, to grow in our understanding of who you are, Lord. We want to grow in our belief, in our awareness, Lord, of, of all the different nuances about you. And, Lord, in knowing all those things, Lord, you will increase our life in you because, Lord, it will be fueled by our knowledge of you. And Lord, we just want to just I'll ask you, Lord, to have your way with us. And as we... As we study your word, Lord, as your word fills us, Lord, would you give us a humility to respond, Lord, to what it is that you're doing in our hearts. Allow your, your Holy Spirit to have freedom. And Lord, allow me as your messenger to be faithful to you, to represent you, Lord, and to, to glorify your name, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. So we have to begin here by asking ourselves a question. And that question is this, who is Jesus? We know we're talking about Jesus because we know the story of the Gospel of John is ultimately about Jesus. The prologue doesn't necessarily give us his name, but it talks about he is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And of course, the rest of the book talks about this one who is the Word and his name is Jesus. So the question then is, who is Jesus? This is a question that people have been asking for years, is it not? And they've been debating, they've been arguing and Lots of people have written lots of different things to answer this question, but John simply paints a very clear picture for us concerning who he really is, ultimately, that Jesus is God, okay? But there's really, I want to I present it this way. There are three ways that Jesus, or sorry, two ways that Jesus here is presented. First of all, he's presented as the Word. That is who he is. You say, okay, that's nice. Um, our culture has hijacked this expression. Um, oftentimes, people, especially out here on the West Coast, when they, they interact with each other, they meet each other, um, they might say, you know, hey, Ron, what's the word? 
right? It's kind of a greeting. It's kind of like saying, hey, what's going on? What's going down? What's shaking? All right? Kind of like that. Now, in certain hip contexts, if you are agreeing with someone, you'll simply say, word, <laughs> right? All right? So, I mean, there's, there's, there's a different meaning now to that word, word, in our context. And probably as you've read this passage before, as you've known, probably this word, word, is the Greek word logos, you have an idea this word came from and is really rooted in a Greek mindset. But that isn't completely true. Although the logos was a big part of Greek philosophy, the expression, the word, is also rooted in the Old Testament. It's rooted in a, in a Hebrew understanding of who God is. So let's first of all think about the, the Hebrews or the Jews and their understanding of this word. It's not going to be up on the screen, so you might want to listen here. It's simply this. The word is the expression of divine power and wisdom. So this idea of word is this expression of divine power and wisdom. Psalm 33, verse 6 says this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. In other words, by the Lord, these things happen. He is this divine power. He is this wisdom. So by the word of the Lord, um, God introduced the Abrahamic covenant. He gave Israel the Ten Commandments. Um, God counseled Elijah. By the word of the Lord, God directed his people through various prophets. And we can go on. The word of the Lord was a key theme and a key reality in the Old Testament. In fact, when we understand the expression, the word of the Lord, it's not disconnected from the action of the Lord. When God spoke, there was also a, a, an equal action on his part. So when we see word, we understand action. We see action of God. We understand it's his word. In other words, God is, is breathing out what he wants to take place. When God created, what did he do? Spoke it. When he spoke it, it happened. Okay? So this is, this is this power, this divine power, this divine wisdom that is behind this word. It is also um, really a, t a title of his, his self disclosure. As the Word, He has been and is revealing Himself to us. He has been and is presently in the process of revealing Himself to us. Now, imagine if I got up this morning during the sermon time, and I came up here, and I opened my notes, opened my Bible, and I stood, and I read. Ten minutes later, I'm still looking down, I'm reading, I'm studying, looking, maybe even praying quietly, you can't hear me. And then after an hour, I get up and I walk over the chair and I sit down. You're going to say, what was that all about? And I would just say, well, I was just, I was interacting with God. I was fellowshipping with him. Now listen, the Godhead, the Trinity, interacts with itself, right? But the Godhead also desired to interact with us. How does that take place? God reveals himself to 
and words. And he's created us to be revelation receivers. Now, we've joked about this before, right? You don't drive down the street and see a bunch of cows going to church. They're not huddled around a tree, you know, with, with some other cow, maybe a bull, right, to be proper, right, actually leading them in worship, right? No, cows don't have the capacity for understanding the things of God, but God has created us with that capacity. And he reveals himself to us through words, through the word of God, call it, right? So he is in this, this business of revealing himself to us. And listen, we are dependent on God speaking so that we can know him. Without him speaking, our awareness of him would be, at best, very, 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 to the nth degree, fuzzy. But he has blessed us. He has pursued us. He has gifted us with his scripture, his word, so that we could understand who he is, what he is like, and how we can relate to him. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So Jesus, the Word, is an expression of God's heart and his passion and his desire to, to pursue us and to bring us into his fold. So the Hebrew understanding then of this idea of Word is that Word is the expression of this divine power and this wisdom they would see that it was the God of the Old Testament, that triune God that was actually the source of that word, or was that word, okay? To the Greeks, however, this word, logos, was the primary principle behind the universe. It was the primary principle behind the universe. Maybe you could put it this way. The, the logos was the, the, was the thing that launched everything. If something existed, if, some, if something was it was the result of the Logos. It was the impersonal principle of reason and order. It, underst it is understood um, to be a, a, this creative force as well as a source of wisdom. So, so get the picture here. In the Greek setting, you have this, this idea of this, this thing, this impersonal force, this, this reality that is behind the existence of everything. Then you have the Hebrews that say, well, we believe that this word is this, this divine being that is behind the existence of everything and behind wisdom. In, in one way, shape, or form, they're both saying the same thing. Get this? They're both identifying that there is a source for everything. There is something that launches everything. So to the Hebrews, the word... Um, is the one who launches or is the source of everything. To the Greeks, the word is the, might want to say, force that launches or is the source of everything. It's that universal principle. It's the reason. It's the force behind everything. Now, listen, there's something, there's something incredibly awesome about how John uses this expression. Because when he says, in the beginning was the word, what he's doing is he's appealing to both the Hebrews and the Greeks. 
to that which they believe is behind and is the answer and is the reason for existence, it's that logos, it's that word. And so he's bringing everyone in by identifying in the beginning was the word. I mean, he is incredibly evangelistically minded in using this expression and identifying the, the commonality here of, of their awareness, but bringing it down to not saying there is this kind of a fuzzy God, because even those that were Hebrew at that point in time had been distorted in their understanding of God, right? Because of the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees and the religious rulers of the day, they'd added and, and distorted things about God. And what they really needed to know was that there really is a one true God who is the Word. And this is the person that we are introducing to you. This is the person this, this gospel is going to be about. It's going to be about this Word that was from the beginning. All right? Now, I realize this right now is just kind of philosophical and it's heady. But hang with me, okay? Hang with me here. The second thing, letter B, is this. As the Word... Here's some things that we need to know. As the word, Jesus is, we're going to see a couple of things here. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Like I said, much ink has been spilled on these two verses. And probably lives have been lost because of interpretations based on these two verses. Okay, That's not going to happen here today, just so you know. Okay. Um, but we are able to stand at least on the shoulders of all those people who have wrestled with these things. This classic, this passage, by almost every commentator I read on this, said that this passage is the most important text we have on the subject of the Trinity. This is not one that we just kind of breeze by. And so there's some things in here that I think are helpful for, helpful for us because man who does not want to recognize the God of the Bible as the authority will do all he can to undermine what these two verses are saying about who God is. Alright, so first of all, notice in the beginning was the Word. Jesus is eternally existing. Now, the, the, the word was in this verse here is in the Greek imperfect tense, which means this, was continuing. So add the word continuing here into this verse. It's not that it's translated wrong. It's just that you understand the tense of what's going on with this word was. In the Greek language, you have some of those freedoms there. So in the beginning was continuing the word. In other words, he didn't have a beginning point. In the beginning, in that eternity past, the Word was. The Word was continuing, all right? And the Word was continuing with God, and the Word was continuing in the beginning with God. So the key point here is that the Word was eternally existing. He, Jesus, has no starting point. He's not a created being. He's not a created angel. He is not a son of God in the sense that he was procreated at a point in time after eternity began. He was. And he continues to was. Alright? In eternity past. I know that's not correct English for those of you who are teachers. But he continues to be, or he continues to was. Alright? 
Not only was he eternally existing, he was also eternally fellowshipping. In the beginning was the Word, and that Word was with God. Now again, that expression, with God, literally means, it's a little Greek word, and it means to or toward, and has the idea of coming face to face. It is a word that is not just simply talking about I was in the vicinity with God. You know, he happened to be in the same room with me, you know, during that time. No, it's talking about an intimate, face-to-face relationship with God. So read that again. And the word was face-to-face, leaning toward God. Now, I don't know about you, um, but when I, when I read this and was studying this, there's, there's this one kind of image that came to my mind. Do you guys know who Torval and Dean are? Does that ring a bell at all? Torval and Dean are a couple that in the uh, Winter Olympics were involved in ice dancing. Probably the best known ice dancing couple, Torval and Dean, they're from England. And if you watch them, and you watch them skate around the ice, I know, it's another England thing, right? All right? But as you watch them skate around on the ice, it almost looks as if it's one person. Because everything they do is symmetrical. Their legs are going up together, they're skating together, they're moving, all of those two individual people, they are flowing in harmony together as if they are one. It's really an incredible picture. And that's what's happening here. In the beginning was the Word, eternally existing. And the Word was face-to-face with God, intimately fellowshipping in harmony with the Godhead. And the third thing here, and the Word was God. So Jesus, not only was eternally existing, eternally fellowshipping, he was also eternally God. He is eternally God. So the idea that the Word of God, the Word and God, were the same, um, or the idea here is that the Word and God are the same in essence and character. So in other words, the Word was God, equals God, is the same as God. Okay? So there's, there's certainly a, a separateness to who the Word is and to the rest of the Godhead, but there's certainly a quality here going on with the Godhead. And listen, there are some religious cults, um, Jehovah's Witnesses in particular, that will come to a passage like this, and because of their theological position, they have to do something with this text, right? So you know what they do? They add a word in there. You probably know this because you've interacted with them. They say, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was what? A God. They just change the Greek text. Now there's no historical basis for that change. You go back and you study the the, the Greek text, you will not find a historical basis for that. You will find some distorted basis ultimately later on in years, but you also don't have any connection with the whole theme and the focus and the flow of what John is arguing here to even come to that conclusion. The reality is that man without God, who's created his own system of religion, does not want to acknowledge Jesus Christ as God. And will even go as far as changing the text of Scripture. Now, I don't know how they do that with a clear conscience, except their conscience is seared. That's just the reality of it. Because you deny Christ being God, you deny what Scripture teaches. 
All right? So we need to understand here that Jesus is being prepared here to be talked about anecdotally through stories and through, through signs and, and illustrations that John is going to present to us in, in the gospel. But we need to understand that he always was, and in his always wasness, he was with God, face to face, intimate, in harmony with him, and he himself was God. Now, step aside, shake your head and go, yeah, 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 and get all the cobwebs out there to try and put all this together in your head, I understand, can be hard, but scripture is saying this about Jesus, right? He's eternal, he's eternally fellowshipping, and he certainly is God. So that's the word. The word is Jesus, and we find these three things stated about him. Now, what does Jesus, the word, do? That's what the rest of this passage really reveals for us. What does Jesus, the word, do? Is he just sitting in heaven, fellowshipping? Um, which he has been doing for eternity. It's hard for us to comprehend that, isn't it? That he was in perfect communion, in perfect harmony with the Godhead, um, without any need for us. <laughs> God did not have this big empty hole and thought to himself, ah, oh, I'm so lonely, I'll create mankind, so I'll have someone to love and someone to love me. Ah, oh. that's not what happened. But God, in his wisdom, in his choice, in his holy, pure, divine will, created mankind, created this, this earth, and we're told a little bit about that. Look at verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus, the Word, is first of all the source of creation. He creates. And once again, this passage takes us right back to the Genesis account of creation, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we're told there um, that it was the Godhead. If you go through some of those passages there, you understand that's true. Also, in the New Testament, we have some other expressions or passages that identify the same thing. But here, Jesus is being talked about as God. It's already been established. He's with the Father. He's eternal. But he is now the one who creates. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, there's a positive and there's a negative. Right? He made everything. And everything that was made, no one else made it except for him. He's it. Got, here's your choices as far as who the creator is. Jesus or Jesus. However you want to look at it. Colossians chapter 1. Turn there if you would please. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 16. In fact, Ilya, the song that he introduced to us today, was quoting this passage. For by him, that's Jesus Christ, Paul says, all things were what? All things were made or created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible. Ah, so we got more details going on here. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is 
the creative power. Not only to speak it into existence, but also to hold it together. Now, I'm thankful that God creates. I'm also thankful that God holds things together. And the older I get, and the more my waist size changes, I'm thankful that he holds things together. I'm thankful that he holds your chair up. I'm thankful that he holds your glasses together. And we could go on. God holds those particles together so that stuff is stuff. I mean, how in the world do those protons and neutrons, you know, flow around each other and, and create whatever it is that is being created? He holds it together. Now, the Greek philosophers used to come up with all sorts of different ideas. Jesus comes, and we find out that he's the one that holds it all together. Now, this is really important in particular for John because... One of the false teachings that crept into the early church was this, this, this really plagued the church, was dualism in the form of Gnosticism, right? And basically, what that meant was that, that anything that was physical, that you could touch, that was matter, was evil. Only spirit, spiritual things, could be good. And so for a Greek mind, in order for the logos to be... God or to be divine, it could not touch what? Matter. So a logos could not also be a creator in that sense. It, those two things could not come to him. He may have launched it, but it happened at a distance. But notice what, what John is saying here and what Paul ultimately is saying is this. Not only did Jesus create but he also holds it together. He is actively and intimately involved in the creation. Which really counters this whole dualistic idea and the whole Gnostic heresy that was being presented. So here we have a declaration that the Logos, the Word, is the very source of all creation and the one who is creating. So he is the source of creation. He's also the source of life. He's the source of life. We know this is a theme in this book. This is the goal, ultimately, of John's gospel. We read that earlier. That life, for us, would be his goal. But Jesus claims to be the source of life when he says this, John 14 and verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the what? Life. You know this. These are common expressions, but it's all part of this book. John 10, 28, I gave or give them eternal what? Life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The thief comes only to steal, John 10, 10, and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. John 3, 16, God so loved the world. How does that passage end? That everyone would have what? Eternal life. This life is, is something that is rooted in this Logos, who is the Word, who ultimately is Jesus. Now, interestingly enough, the word life is used 35 times in this Gospel. The verb form is used 15 times. So that's 50 times, right? It's used in this Gospel. It's a lot of discussion about the subject of life. Now, Go, if you would, please, back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Because we're going to see 
this life unfolded in three different ways. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 says this, Then the Lord God formed the man out formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God, Jesus, Logos, Word, through this breath of life, took dust and made it live. took dust and created life, human life. Just think about this. Every breath you take is a gift from the source of life. You are the result of that creation of man that has reproduced and reproduced and reproduced and reproduced. God brought physical life into existence by his breath. This is what the word does. This is what Jesus does as the source of life. Secondly, not only is there physical life, but there is spiritual life. Just as Jesus is the source of spiritual life, for us, he is also the source, sorry, just as he is the source of physical life for us, he is also the source of spiritual life. Now get this, we are dead spiritually. That's what scripture tells us. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We were unresponsive. That dust on the ground was not laying there saying, I want to live, I want to live. It was dust. God took something that wasn't alive, breathed life into it. That's the physical life. The spiritual life is where God takes we who are dead, we who are unresponsive, and he breathes regenerating life into us. Now please, please hear this. It's not not accurate to say that everyone has a little spark of life in them, that God just has to come and fan the flame so that they will finally turn themselves to God. No, we are dead. We have no ability in ourselves to turn to God. That is, honestly guys, that is why grace is so amazing. That is why we are in awe of what God has chosen to do in us because we don't deserve it and we were dead to it. In fact, we were enemies concerning it. We were hostile to it, and yet God breathed life into us. Why? Not because of anything we have done, but only because in his wisdom and his compassion and his love, he sought us and he brought us into his family. He didn't have to fan any flame. The only flame he fanned was the faith that he put into us that he then fanned, and we, as a result of that, embraced him as our Lord and Savior. So there's physical life, there's spiritual life, and there ultimately is eternal life. Eternal life. Now the life that God gives through the word 
is not only earthly life, but ultimately it is eternal life. In other words, God didn't breathe life into us so that we could just live it here and now. This is not all there is. Now for many people, this is all there is. Now hear me, sadly, even for many believers, it seems like the way some believers live, that this is all there is. They're after getting what now can provide for them. And it's easy to get caught up in that. But as God's children, there's something far broader and far greater, and that ultimately is eternal life. And eternal life simply means life without end. Life eternally with God. It also means abundant life. Abundant life does not mean you go home to your mailbox and you get this big fat check. That's not abundant life. Abundant life is something far more significant. Again, going back to a verse we read, John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So here's what abundant life is. Abundant life is rooted in the character of God. And it's a life that is living also by the faithful promises of God. It's rooted in the character of God, and it's living by the faithful promises of God. Now get this. It is so important for us as we are opening his word, as we come face to face with different dynamics of who God is, to learn and to embrace and to just to, to grab a hold of every attribute, every awareness of who God is. Because once we understand those attributes and what they mean and the impact they have on our lives, we will live our lives with confidence and with, with assurance and uh, in ways that will, will, will be surprising maybe to people that you may know, maybe even to other believers who have not come face to face with that particular attribute. It also means living based on God's promises. If God has promised you eternal life, you're not going to lose it. I mean, what's it like to say you've got eternal life? Oh, no, you don't. That's not eternal life. I mean, just logically speaking, you can't have eternal life for just a little bit. It's eternal. Now, listen, we, we have to understand here that eternal life gives us a confidence for living now. If we're coming face-to-face -face with difficulties, we'll say, you know what? My life with, with Christ is bigger than the here and now. He wants me to live my life here and now for his glory, but I can do it holding on to what he says and what he promises about himself, about me. And God never promised us that life will be without trouble. But he promises us that if there is trouble, that he is being glorified in us through that trouble. So in the midst of that trouble, we can pause and we can say, God, I don't know what you're doing. You're probably more like Jonah. I don't like what you're doing. But God, you are sovereign. And you know what's best. So Lord, help me to adjust myself to your desires and to know in my heart with assurance that my life is eternal, and this is simply my home for a season. And I'm only here not to do what I want to do, but to be your ambassador. This is, this is not my, my citizenship. This is my temporary place. 
We start embracing promises and realities like that. That changes how we view life. That changes how we live. That changes how we, we respond when we're going through difficult times. That's because it's a life, and it's life that is abundant. It has nothing to do with money and stuff. It has to do with all the treasures of glory that come from who God is. Not only is he um, the source of life, the third thing here is that he's the source of light. The source of light. And really, one leads to the other, right? Creation from the and there's life, and ultimately once there is life, then he is the source of light. But what is light? A scientist would say light is energy. A philosopher would say light is wisdom. And you go up into the Himalayas and you find that guru, and you know, light is wisdom. To the religious seeker, light is purity, perfection. And just think about that. Isn't, isn't that a description of God and all of those things put together? He is energy. He is wisdom. He is purity. He is perfection. See, he's, he's all of those things in one. And John really captures that in explaining to us who Jesus is. And listen, light is the, is the universal image for the illumination of the mind and understanding. So by this title, the light, Jesus being the light, Jesus is revered or revealed here as the one who knows God the Father and makes him known. So Jesus as the light is the one who has come in the flesh, and while he is on this earth, he is the one that, knows the Father, but at the same time, he is making him known. And we now have record after record after record of Jesus making the Godhead known. It's a quite significant title attributed to God. Throughout the Old Testament, we'll just read a couple of passages. You can just listen to Psalm 21, or 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Later, John, as he's writing his letter, the first one in verse 5 says this. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is is light and in him is no darkness at all without light there's no vision without light there's no understanding of reality there's no confidence in our journeying there's no growth there's no health there is no life now again it's not as if there was some light and God and Jesus or this word entered into the world and added to that light. So the light we're talking about here is not necessarily physical light, it's spiritual light. We are described pre-Christ as being in what? Darkness. Now friends, it's not like, oh, it's a little dark outside. Spiritually speaking, 
man could hold his hand in front of his face and could not see anything because it's so black and it's so dark. The world was in darkness. But when God came and God entered, He brought light. There was no light spiritually until God entered the scene. And in particular, as Jesus entered the scene as the world, it was clear that He was light entering into that darkness. Now listen, as a father, I'm sure you've probably had this experience before. It's the middle of the night, and um, it's dark outside, it's dark in the house, and you hear some noises somewhere, you're not sure what it is, and so you hop out of bed to go around the house to check on what it is you need to check on. But you don't want to turn the lights on because you don't want to disturb anyone, right? So you start walking down the hallway, and you trip over a shoe. Anyone been there before, right? You trip over a shoe, and you all that kind of stuff, right? Then you turn into one of your kids' room, you step in the kids' room, and you trip over who knows what else is on the floor, a toy, a block, uh, I don't know, it could be a, some, some sporting equipment. But I invariably will be walking around in the middle of the night trying to do that kind of stuff, and I will stub my toe on something, a piece of furniture, a stair, whatever it might be. Why? Because I'm walking in the dark. When we are walking in darkness, understand, when, when the scripture is being talked about as unbelievers walking in darkness, it is pitch black darkness. It's not like kind of dark out with a moon shining up there. No, it's pitch black darkness. And they're stumbling and they're tripping and they're stepping on stuff and it's messy and it's ugly and they need help. But they don't know it. Until the light comes says, look at me. Here's the truth. Here's the reality. So we need the light. Desperately need the light. Now notice verse 5. This really kind of takes us to a head here, and this is really the, the application side of things for us to think through. The word, the source of life, shines the light. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I want to focus in on that word overcome. Now, you may have a, an NIV, and in the NIV it says, um, it says understand. The darkness has not understood it, or does not understand it. If you have a King James, I don't know if you do, but it says, and the, the, the darkness did not comprehend it. Okay? It is a Greek word called katalambano. I'm not saying that to impress you, just to identify the word which means to comprehend, to understand, to overcome, to seize, to grasp, or to master. You say, why is this important? Because it's a word that has a double meaning. And that's why different translations will choose one of those meanings, because there's a double meaning going on, but you've got to choose one word, right? If you had catalambano, that's all you would need, because you'd understand there's a double meaning. Let me explain to you what I'm talking about. Look at that word up there, grasp. In our English language, we use the word grasp to describe something we do physically as well as mentally, right? I can grasp this with my hand, but I can also grasp a concept with my mind, right? It's the same word, catalambano. 
That word can be used in both of those senses and is used in Scripture in those ways. The word master is also from this word katalambano. Right? You can master something physically, but you can also master something intellectually with your mind, right? Same word used two different ways. That's why the NIV, it says the darkness could not understand it. Here we have the darkness has not overcome it. One has the idea of grasping in the mind. The other one has an idea of physically doing something against it. Now here's the point. Those who are in darkness cannot grasp with their mind who God is. And they cannot comprehend, or so they cannot, they cannot overcome it physically because they don't have the ability to do that. Now they want to. There's a number of stories in the New Testament about that, right? The sower goes out to sow, and the sea goes out there, and what happens? A bird comes down and snatches away that sea. Ah, the battle's on. Right? The world of darkness, which would include Satan and his purposes, will desire to undo what God is doing, but they can't. They'll have some influence, but only influence that God has allowed. We are living in a world that is described as a world of what? Darkness. Now get this. When someone doesn't um, want to listen to what God has to say, it's likely because they cannot grasp it. Because God not has, re- has not revealed it to them. The light has not gone on in them, so to speak. And the end result of that is that they want to snuff it out. So the world system will say, no to God. I don't like your ideas. I don't like whatever it is that you're trying to present to me. And you know what? Because I do not want your authority over me, I'm going to do all I can to snuff you out. Friends, that's the world in which we live. It is against the light. It is darkness. But into that darkness came Jesus, the Word, the source of creation, the source of life, and the source of light. But you know what he calls us? You are the what? We are the light. We don't hide it under a bushel. No! What are we supposed to do? You guys are just waiting for that, right? No, we're going to let it shine because we have the light. Friends, please, please hear this. We have the great privilege now of worshiping the Word. The reason behind the existence of everything. The force behind all creation. We have the great privilege of worshiping the creator of this universe, the one who gives life, the one who is the light. And not only that, we have the great privilege of representing him and living for his glory. And we will have the privilege of learning more as we go through this great gospel so that we can grasp who this word really is. It's personal. He's not just something out there that is a force. He is a very personal God who loves us, who 
pursues us, who draws us to himself. And this morning, we embrace the light, even though the world rejects it. And we celebrate the gospel that is shone in our hearts. We have a loving master. And because of him, we grasp the truth. Actually, we want to seize it. We just want to grab it and hold on to it. We have an opportunity right now as we celebrate the Lord's table to celebrate who God is, who Jesus is, being God as the word. Let us humble ourselves before him as we prepare to take the Lord's table. Let me just say before I pray, if you are here as our guest, we practice open communion. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I invite you to come and to join us also. And uh, we, we all come up to the front and get the elements and go back to our seats and then we take them together. Okay? Lord, help us today. Help us to grasp, Lord, the importance of these few verses see, Lord, you in your glorious beauty. You are the word and you are the reason for the existence of this world, for our existence. You created us, Lord. You sustain us. You have breathed life into us, Lord. You are the source of, of life. You are the source of light, Lord. You are foundation of our lives. Lord, you are to be central in all that we do. So Lord, help us today to be strengthened and encouraged by taking a look at you. And Lord, would you allow your Holy Spirit to affect us and to challenge us and to to humble us. Lord, if there's sin that is being revealed, Lord, to come before you and Lord, seek forgiveness and confess that sin, Lord, and be restored in our relationship to you. And Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't know you, that is beginning to see your light, Lord, I ask that you would give them Lord, the freedom to come boldly to you and to embrace you as their Lord and Savior. We ask now for your strength and Lord, for a time of personal communion as we celebrate the Lord's table.